0: Today's episode brings you Across the jew This series was created with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada, representing over 400 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $2 billion annually and through planned giving and endowment programs to build flourishing Jewish communities at home, in Israel, and around the world. Find out how to get involved with your Jewish federation, as you should, at jfeds.org slash unorthodox. That's jfeds.org unorthodox.
1: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever— by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello, good day. Good day to you, madam. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom and a happy almost Lent to you, Mark. And good day to you, governor. Today on our show, our Gentiles of the Week are the hosts of the Jesuitical podcast. We We hosted, we welcomed into our space into our parish, Ashley McKinless and Zach Davis from the podcast Jesuitical, produced by America Magazine. We talked about Lent. They have this tradition of coming to us to ask what they should give up for Lent, and we are only too happy to oblige. And it's always fun to sit down and have uh, potable beverages with the Jesuiticals.
0: And we told them, we don't Lent, we own. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, because we're landlords?
1: That's right. Because <laughs> we're usurious are those landlords.
2: Those evil Jew- Jewish landlords? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also, we're bringing you the next installment of Across the USA, in which Stephanie goes to Seattle. We played coy on previous episodes, but some of you guessed it anyway. But Stephanie, you went to Seattle. You reported from Seattle. We're about to hear that. But also, you're going away again. You're a well-traveled Jewcaster. Where are you going next week?
2: I'm doing this thing. I think it's pronounced Vecatian? Vecatio. Vecatian? Vecatio. I'm going on vacation. (laughs) I'm going on vacation with all the Butnicks, all the Butnicks and former Butnicks. My parents, me, Ben, and Edith, my sister, brother-in-law, and their kids. It is going to be so much fun. I'm really excited. Uh, we are recording this early uh, and then I'm just I'm logging off.
1: I'm not going to ask you to reveal where you're going to be because I don't want fans to accost you. But is it warm? <laughs> is it warm or cold? It's, going-
2: warm. it's warm. It's warm.
1: OK. OK. Excellent.
2: <laughs> Thank you for thinking that that people might try to join me on vacation. Everyone's welcome. <laughs>
1: I just want you to have a chill, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be on the job when you're vacationing.
2: Well, the funny thing is so my nephew's love Edith. Edith loves them. She calls them boys, the boys. And they're 3 and 5 and my sister is telling me that She's like, I'm trying to explain to them that they can't sit next to Edith on the plane. They can't both sit next to Edith uh, on the plane. They can't all three be in a row together because I don't think that's allowed. Although,
0: by the way, that is the greatest premise for a reality show ever made.
2: <laughs> what? You just put kids in a kids row on, on, the a, on
0: a plane? A <laughs> kids Spanks on a plane. sequel <laughs> on a Plane. It's and you just, just let, like let them unchecked, loose. Unchecked, <laughs> unwatched, two, three, and five, <laughs> let them do whatever they want.
2: But, like, I actually don't know that three kids can sit in a row by themselves. Is that, like, if TSA says that's allowed? But as long as they don't funny. carry liquids. Back <laughs> in the day, liquid. it just meant they
1: couldn't smoke, but they could go, They could sit in a row. They just, Nowadays- <laughs> They had
2: to go upstairs to smoke.
1: That's right. <laughs> they had to
2: crawl up those stairs to smoke in the olden days.
1: Emily Bazelon wrote a great piece for Slate 10, 15 years ago about trying to put her 12-year-old on an Amtrak train. And she basically found that Amtrak now said, unless you were 16, you needed to pay for a chaperone and take out travel insurance. And like, basically, 14 and 15-year-olds couldn't go on a train- in the northeast corridor, by themselves, it's gotten and and she called Amtrak and said why, and they had no good reason why. So then I repeated her experiment when I tried to put a ten or eleven year old on a train a few years ago, and nobody can tell you why. They just know it's against the rules. Kids can't do anything anymore. No more smoking on planes. <laughs> no, no more buying. No more nips, firearms. No more
0: alcohol. No, no more no tobacco.
1: Nothing. I mean, this used to be America. That's right. That's right. Then the the the, the health nuts came for our guns, for our children's cigarettes, guys. I have a question. Can I can I crowdsource something?
2: Why else podcasts?
1: In Shul, there's this thing they have started doing the past year or so where if somebody gives a really good Torah reading, or just a really ambitious Torah reading, maybe they've never read Torah before, maybe they're it's their first time and so it's amazing they got there. There's a noise people make now that basically means good job, like yeah. And it goes, it's P S H H H. It's
2: psh it's not like Peshaw. It's
1: not Peshaw, it's it's not Pshaw.
2: pshaw. pshaw. And this isn't, this isn't people shushing you. And
1: no. no, no. And it's now kind of ubiquitous. And I'm finding it's more a younger person's thing. I'm going to say this, there, no judgment on this. I'm being purely anthropological and descriptive. I think it comes out of the left somehow. It's like independent minyanum. It's sort of progressive Jews. It come. It's seen as, okay, because let me back up. In Shul, you wouldn't applaud someone who does a great job chanting Musaf or reading Torah. We don't yeah, break a thing, out into applause. Yeah, that's do
2: thing, right? You don't clap. You don't you clap. Don't clap. Okay. And
1: you don't say right on. Now, you might say yashkoach when they pass by you in the aisle. Yes. Shkoach, shkoach, yashkoach, shkoach. But you don't shout it out, right? There's no sort of group thing we by do. By the way, we way never that-
2: talked about, is shkoach like the world's first portmanteau? Yashkoach? Yashkoach? Yeah, shkoach.
1: Yeah. You can say
2: what that is, what that means. Well, it's just, just pronunciation, like
1: right on, you know. Right on, to your on. strength, to your strength. But there's this thing that because we don't applaud, because you don't shout out huzzah or even yashkoach, there's this thing people have started doing where they say psh, when they finish, when someone steps down.
2: Wait, that's, is that like snaps on a on a? It's film? like snaps. It's like- Or at yeah. a sorority meeting? And
1: I've asked a few people, where did it come from? And again, it's at my school, It only made its way to my shul in New Haven in the past year to two years. And somebody said, oh, it comes from Hadar in New York City. That's their thing. And so it's because a lot of people, when they're in New York, go to Hadar as a, if they're looking for a kind of progressive, but also traditional blend of Judaism. And they're often grad students. And then they go out across the country to take their jobs at hospitals, law firms, faculties, whatever. They've taken it with them. But then someone else said to me, oh, no, no, they've been doing that at the Jewish day school in our town for years, that when a kid does a really good job with a Torah reading or it's their first time, people say, Psh. I just want to know where it's from. I want, And I want to know, does it mean something other than just good job? Does it have a kind of like, is there a, a valence to it or a kind of connotation that I'm missing? And I think we're going to get a 1000000000000 D answers on this.
0: While we're at it, can we also crowdsource something related and equally important, which is like, why not? Okay, I get why not clap because it's disrespectful. But let me tell you, I for bringing hate, like that, 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 yeah. Stupid. What should it be? Here, no, no, but here's the thing. If you I hate really snaps. feel moved, me too. If you really feel moved and joyous, don't. Life's do this, not a
1: poetry reading, you know, <laughs>
0: don't,
2: like, don't do this. This. It's twee, an open mic night. Don't do this
0: twee little like, oh, I'm going to make a gesture, but I recognize the rules. So I'm going to be polite and respectful. Just say like, yeah, like just to have some. Ruach, okay. shatter, why and Good job. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. There
2: is a feeling that I felt in synagogue. And granted, I don't go very often and I go on those serious days where it's like a solemnity. Like there's not the joyousness you often think about in other faiths, right? Like this idea right. of like, there isn't that. I mean, does it, maybe that exists and I'm just missing it, but like you wouldn't whoop for someone, but like how do you do something that's a little bit more like-
1: This is why Ben Stiller brought in the choir to do Enkeloheynu, right? Heinu. I mean. Ein Ein kello heinu, kello heinu. It, no, absolutely. And and we there's no reason we shouldn't be uproariously joyous. And yeah, I kind of think it's a halfway step because we're not the kind of people who say, woo, nice job, rocket, yeah, nice job. Like we're not shouters. And so it's a kind of faint sort I mean, We're solemnity. shouters
0: when we talk about Israel. We're shouters when we talk about Nobel prizes. You know, you're right. No, you're
1: right. You're shouters right. when you're we right. talk about bagels. Like, hey, it, why not shout at shul? One time when I was leading a workshop for undergraduates, they were snapping after someone read, and I stopped them. I said, "Why are you snapping?" And they said, "Well, applause is really aggressive, and snapping is more, you know, calming." Right. And they basically thought there was something too like angry or violent about clapping. I said, "No, it's it's that you're overcome with the enthusiasm." For how great a job someone did, you don't want to tone that down. So I think what both of you are saying is leading me to think we should jettison the psh for just S- surprise,
0: surprise. And the hauls. generation that no longer has sex thinks clapping is too aggressive. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we stop. We stop. 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 That's what it is. So I, having grown up among the Persians of Great Neck. The best thing was that after, at the end of a bar mitzvah, they'd do the. Li, 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 li,
1: li. Right. They did would yululate. Really? Yeah. I love.
2: And then they throw really hard yeah. candies at you. The Ashkenazis had the it soft wrong, candies. In Israel too. This
1: is this how it happens.
2: <laughs> so how do we get some of that? But mitzvah like, yeah. or our
1: mitzvah ends, and it's like. Li,
2: li, 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 li. I love it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think we need a new sound. In fact, this in some ways may be what our listener line was born for. You can write to us at at unorthodoxatalentmag.com. But if ever you were to call us at 914-570-4869, it would be to give us what you think the good sound would, a better sound for congratulating people after they've done something amazing in shul or just been present or returned after an illness, benched gomel, whatever it is. What's something better than the really kind of mild psh,
0: it should be something that approximates the sound a cash register makes, like a ka ching. <laughs> hey, baby, 914
1: 570 4869. News of the Jews, N O T J, news of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. News of the Jews Leo you are of course our senior fashion correspondent would you would you take us to fashion week for uh, the first item I'm our senior fashion correspondent and our junior Hollywood correspondent and a lover of all things
0: reality TV and this week it could not be better because all my interests are just you know coinciding have a listen and Frank you know it's going to be a good story when this is literally the first line and Frank goes the story from JNS, hung pictures of movie stars on the walls of the secret annex where her family hid from the Nazis. But that does not mean it is appropriate for television stars to pose wearing her image on their pants. That's just what interior designer, the unimprovably named Amanza, with a Z, (laughs) Amanza (laughs) Smith did when she posed recently for New York Fashion Week with fellow stars of the Netflix reality show Selling Sunset, Mary Fitzgerald, and Romaine Bonnet. These people, like, all went through random name generators. I don't (laughs) care. Smith's (laughs) pants contain dozens of black and white portraits. Several commenters on Instagram noticed Che Guevara's likeness. What went unnoticed was Anne Frank's unmistakable (laughs) likeness on Smith's pants, a few heads below Guevara, and may I say just next to Jim Morrison of the doors. Uh, first question is where do I get these pants because they're
3: amazing.
2: We need to talk about these pants. Okay, these are covered in black and white images of famous people. It is an insane collection of faces. You see JFK, you see Jim Morrison, you see Elvis, you see Martin Luther King Jr., and yeah, right there above her right foot is Anne and freaking Frank. <laughs> what Anne for is what are Frank. These pants? What are these pants? Uh. I just want to know
0: who the designer was. Be like, okay, so the concept is famous (laughs) famous
1: icons of the 20th century. Go. Go. (laughs) There is that weird thing, though, where it's unclear if it's a tribute to someone or an insult to them if you wear them, right? Like wearing the flag is something you can either do if you're, you know, a NASCAR loving patriot. If you're at NASCAR and singing that country song, Lee Greenwood, and you're wearing the flag. Nobody questions your patriotism. You're, that is a patriotic move. If, however, you're Abby Hoffman or you're at the anti-war protest and you're wearing the flag, somehow Take you're it off, you a flag. Right. right. Take it off, you commie. So you can imagine the move that a certain person makes to wear Anne Frank where they say that's so beautiful, such a tribute to this <laughs> you know, girl who died before time. But I just don't feel like Amanza has the street cred to be wearing Anne Frank. All due respect I do. to Amanza. But you, just, but, but I does. Do, which is which is why my pants, uh, which I'll
0: be releasing in the Unorthodox Swag line, will feature um, Sylvester Stallone, John
1: Lovitz, and Ellie Wiesel. <laughs> no, 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 my pants are going to feature Barbara Streisand, Primo Levy, and <laughs> Rachel Bloom. <laughs> and Rachel Bloom.
2: <laughs> I think my pants are going to be all the Davids: <laughs> David Ben Gurion, David Duchovny. Larry, Larry, David. Larry, David. Larry David. Larry David. David, uh, David the guy, you know, in, in the sculpture. King David. Who else? Who else is going to be on there? The Star of David. The Star of David. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a Star of Davids.
1: Friends, it is springtime, and that means it's the return of the annual tradition, according to which Zach Davis and Ashley McKinless, the hosts of Jesuitical, a Catholic podcast from America Magazine, come to us, their kindred spirits in the world of religion casting. The Popecasters come to the Jewcasters, and they ask, us what they should give up for Lent. It's a beautiful tradition. Often in the past, we've gone to their place and, and they've served the drinks. This time they came to our studios and we served the drinks. And as ever, it devolves into much more than a conversation about Lenten practices. It's, it's uh, you know, by the end of it, you'll see that we've achieved world peace. Here's me, Liel, and Stephanie talking with the hosts of Jesuit.
2: Great to be here all together. Before we start, I think we should all introduce ourselves. We'll, we'll skip the icebreaker, but we think we should all say who we are. As our podcasts
0: be... have grown so much, our so new, so many new Stop listeners. Stop interrupting right. me! You
2: have not introduced yourself. <laughs> I think there, there's five of us who are going to be talking on the on this. The I'm Jews Stephanie. are the ones who interrupt. Yes, the Jews are the ones who interrupt. I'm Stephanie Budnick. I'm one of the hosts of Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast produced by Tablet Studios. And I'm just I'm just happy to be here.
1: I'm Leah Leibowitz. I am the one interrupting my colleagues. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, one of the, the tri-hosts
4: of Unorthodox. So I am Zach Davis. I am one of the co-hosts of Jesuitical, the leading Catholic podcast in the universe.
5: And I'm Ashley McKinless, the other co-host of Jesuitical. And we are both editors at the Jesuit magazine called America.
4: And it's so good to be back with you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing us into your space this time. It was it's it's good to be here.
0: Whenever we come on, on your show, which is one of our favorite things to do on Earth, you always very kindly prepare cocktails. And it strikes me that we have never reciprocated, which is just a shanda. And so today we have created, especially for this occasion, a brand new cocktail. Uh, Stephanie Butnick, what is the cocktail called?
2: The cocktail is called the Rootless Cosmopolitan.
4: The Rootless (laughs) Cosmopolitan. Yes. We
2: are also called Rootless Cosmopolitan sometimes. (laughs) That's That's one one
4: of our favorite derogatory terms for Yeah, but we're taking Uh,
2: it back and we are drinking it down. I
0: love
5: and that. So, we reclaim Jesuitical. That's also kind of an insult. Mm-hmm. That became, that's, it is. That's right.
1: It's funny. Yeah. I don't even think about that because I think about the podcast when I hear the word now. But of course, to call something Jesuitical means abstruse or Underhanded. Or, Almost yeah. like Talmudic. It's, <laughs> yes, it's, it's
4: very exactly similar. Yes. All
1: right, so, so it's
5: working.
1: <laughs> we have replaced uh, Quentro
0: with Blue Cursao to give it that good Hebraic blue uh, instead <laughs> of the Cosmopolitans cranberry juice this is cranberry pomegranate juice because Aww. hey uh, and uh, and some vodka and lime juice
1: oh wow, wow. Oh, oh, it's but that beautiful. is a very blue
2: drink <laughs>
1: wow we will wait, be publishing wait. the recipe in the newsletter this week
4: right yes we will it's,
2: that is a very Lovely. blue drink
4: it's not quite smurf but it's close
2: it's like it's Gatorade it'll definitely <laughs> revive like, you guys
4: <laughs> as uh, as we say in
0: latin laheim laheim i ooh um, if i may that's Great. really good. <laughs> it's like a our last
2: hurrah before Lent. That brings us to like why we're here. We're all here for Lent. We're going to this is airing on both of our shows, it's going to confuse both people confuse both peoples, I should say. Um tell our listeners what Lent is.
4: So, Lent is the period of fasting and penance uh, leading up to Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. it is It comes out of the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert, in the Gospels.
5: Yes, and traditionally, the three penances that come with Lent are fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. I don't know Prayer isn't exactly a penance, but those are the three traditional practices of Lent.
4: And and modern people typically, like, pick a thing or a couple things to do extra, right? So I'm sure if you have Catholic friends, you'll hear, like, what they're giving up for Lent, right? That's a pretty— common. Yeah.
5: And we've gotten much uh, laxer around fasting over the years. It used to be every Friday you were supposed to eat one meal a day or no meals. And then in recent years, it's become on fasting days, which is Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, you get one whole meal and two snacks.
4: <laughs> so, yeah. So not quite fasting. Is it really? That, really is, <laughs> that the,
0: is
5: the official guidance from okay, now, the church. Th-
0: being a uh, Talmudic minded Jew. Two what snacks co- co-
5: that don't add up to a meal.
0: What constitutes yeah. a snack? Uh, yeah. So two? if your
5: average meal has whatever between 500 and 1,000 calories, whatever less than that is divided by two. And
0: if my average meal <laughs> is 5,000 calories, <laughs> yeah, then, then two yeah. cheeseburgers are a perfect snack. Can you them
2: yep. about the yes. diet, the olives. Yes.
0: Uh, so. Uh, for, for those uh, among Them, us. Them, I mean the
2: Gentiles for, among us <laughs> in this room. <laughs>
0: for those among us who are martini lovers, uh, there's an amazing measure. Uh, what constitutes eating anything in, in Judaism, even food that you're not supposed to eat? Uh, the measure, as Stephanie said, is kazait, which means uh, as an olive. So as long as you have something that's the size of a small olive or smaller, you haven't really eaten it. Right. You're kind of, okay, forgiven, permitted it. Uh, and every time I have a martini, I was like, it's a tribute. Yeah, to, fun
5: Catholic fact: yeah. what many monks in the <laughs> Middle Ages did during Lent is survived basically on beer. So that didn't count oh. as eating.
4: <laughs> yes, I also did that in January. <laughs> yeah. it was so I
1: have a, a question. <laughs> and a question. Is, yes. is: there? There must be just knowing the world as it is, knowing Catholicism, and you know, like Judaism. There's always someone trying to be more hardcore than now. There must be some trad, you know, super Catholics who really fast on Fridays. Like, what? What do you? Are there? You're people looking who, at
5: one of them. Are you? <laughs> I right, do. So, oh,
1: yeah. What does that look like? How hardcore do some people go? How hardcore do you go, Zach?
4: I don't don't know that it's that hardcore. I just—so on Fridays, I'm in, like, a men's group at my parish, and collectively, we decide to go no solid sun up to sundown. Smoothies are for the week me. But that's about as hardcore as I get.
5: And the hard trip really falls on his colleagues who have to work with him when he's, he's very hangry. cranky.
4: Yeah, and my <laughs> wife. Yeah. yeah, everybody around me is just like, I hate Lent so much because <laughs> he decides to torture himself and take it out on the rest of us. But no, there are lots of communities. Um, there's this program called Exodus 90.
5: They only eat lo- lo- well. Lucas.
4: No, it's not that, but they've taken the 40 days of Lent and stretched it into 90. Oh, wow. Um, because that's extra. Um, and it's
5: very masculine.
4: <laughs> very um, dude heavy. It
5: requires going to the gym, I think. Yeah. I would say maybe not the gym part, but there are many Catholics, myself and past incarnations included, who use Lent as like, okay, getting bikini ready before the summer. It's like, okay, I'm giving up carbs for Jesus, but also so (laughs) I look good. But also for Instagram.
0: Yes. (laughs) You're a better person now because you have now outsourced your Lent business to us Jews. Um, (laughs) And traditionally it is coming upon us to advise you on things to give up for Lent. Now, we have not coordinated among ourselves. I have no idea oh, boy. What, what my friends are going to say.
2: Why do you ask us this? Why do you, why do you want this? <laughs> why do you want this inflicted
5: on you? Our uh, colleague, Father James Martin, started doing this. He went to University of Pennsylvania and had a lot of Jewish friends and they always made fun of him for like what he gave up for Lent. You're giving up like potato chips? What does that mean? We're
4: like, you get to decide. Why should you get to decide? Yeah. We should yeah. get to decide. <laughs> but, yeah.
5: So, yeah. So, he started having these friends who would give him his Lenten. They gave him pretty easy ones. It's like turmeric one year. I'm like,
4: all right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a spice, I think. You guys they have mentioned.
5: been much harder on us. And they this still year, do it, right?
4: This yeah. year, no eating
1: glass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make this about me for a moment. As as some of our listeners might know, I think I talked about this. I had a detached retina in September. And I had surgery for it. and um that came with a lot of trials, which I'm not here to complain about. But one of the things that happened was I was relatively disfigured for a little while, and I stopped looking in the mirror. and I'm slowly returning to my normal state of vanity. But I do think that it was kind of healthy for me for a while to just not not really look in the mirror, which was something that I had you know I'd been looking in the mirror pretty compulsively since about the age of uh, zero. and so I guess I don't have a specific one I want I want to think in terms of vanity. Could you give up well you could start with that. And I'm I'm not going to assign this specific task, but I want I want you to come at your natural vanity. Maybe you give up looking in the mirror for 40 days. If there's a makeup practice that either of you has, maybe you give up wearing makeup. Something like that. Something something that's very 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 hard because it's so much a part of your daily beauty ritual. Maybe you give up combing your hair. You still wash it, but you don't comb or style it. So I'm going to, I'm going to put that out there. You only, you will know what the version of this is that will really be meaningful to you.
4: Mark, can I ask what, uh, what it was like for you throughout that process? I mean, it sounds terrible. like there was, <laughs> he,
2: <laughs> was his, there? his hair wasn't brushed. He didn't look in a mirror.
1: <laughs>
4: Did you feel more like in touch with like the true self, the the non vain self?
1: Um, I think when I realized after a month or two, because my eye was very swollen and I also I couldn't see the mirror very well, so looking in the mirror was a reminder of how of how much of a hit my vision had taken. When I started returning to my normal vanity, I had the realization that it was it was like using your phone again when you've been on a phone cleanse, and you realize, wow, I'm doing this now, but it's bad for me. And there was actually something quite beautiful about about not having that worry like for about sixty days, sixty or ninety days. I hadn't worried what I looked like because I was deliberately avoiding the question. So it was actually in retrospect when I went back to my normal vanity that I realized, oh, that was a
4: nice thing.
5: I can't imagine Zach without mascara. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, the I true think, self. Yeah, the true self. No, I think what's going to result in for me is like a, a really long patchy beard. Oh, that's your wife
5: going to hate this. Yeah,
4: she's going to, so I'll send her <laughs> to place. Patchy Zach, yeah. <laughs> hangry <laughs> Zach. <Zapper. laughs> send photos, baby, send photos. All right, all right.
2: Stephanie I, Butnick. So, one of my favorite things to do is outsource frustrations to those closest to me, particularly the people who live with me, whether you're like, "You'll never believe what just happened or like this thought I just put like like this That's idea a lot to put on your baby, yeah, and she's amazing. <laughs> um, and luckily, like she can't talk, so she can't tell me anything. But like, I think that we all have these tendencies to to load on our unpaid, unaccredited therapists, right? Like our partners, our parents, our best friend. Like there's a way in which we really, for better and for worse, lean on people. And so I kind of want to like this idea of hunger. Like, could you limit that almost like instinctual need we have to like it's sharing, right? But it's it's usually in a negative way. And I, I don't know that I could do this because maybe it's a really like important and healthy outlet but I love this idea of like, what if you didn't burden this this same person or people all the time with like your no complaining, like the specific complaints. Talking about Zach's wife.
4: Yeah, <laughs> like I, I, I felt, to, that I felt like, like, I live no. alone.
5: I no, don't have anyone. No, you know what to share my mean? Like, my when you call like, your pair,
2: like, you're like, we. I think that we all have these people in our lives, and like, what if we, if you pump the brakes on that for like this period of time and see, like, oh, I really actually use these people in a way that, mm. like, do they get the same thing for me? Am I listening to them? Like, I think that's what. I probably need and so I'm making you do it
4: for well, me. I, I think there is like an impulse to uh, want to share not negative experiences but like complaints immediately like when you get home from work and you're like yeah. how was your day? Like
2: The trains vi- were
4: awful. Yeah, you very rarely start with this amazing thing happened. I was
2: on this amazing Jewish podcast. Yeah,
4: no, I'm going to be like it was raining and I had to go to the dentist first and, <laughs> and the drink was too sour. <laughs> <laughs> too blue. <laughs> yeah, so I think, yeah, I, I, I it seems reasonable to try and refocus that towards, I don't know, a more productive conversation or a more positive one.
5: Yeah, I would say, I think maybe in my personal life, I'm more the person who gets leaned on. But definitely at work, I'm very happy to share my burdens and complain about minor inconveniences with others. So that's an area. So for you in
0: your personal life, you say, I'm not listening to this for 40 days. (laughs) I think we're moving from hard to very hard to what I'm about to (laughs) afflict upon you right now. Uh, there's a scene in the otherwise, I think, forgettable movie, Lincoln, in which Daniel Day-Lewis, by which I mean Abraham Lincoln, uh, is talking to someone and trying to convince them to kind of tone down the sort of freedom and freeing the slaves talk, because he says basically, hey, man, this is realpolitik. We're trying to make consensus work here. And the person's like, no, America needs to know the cause of freedom, she ring. And Lincoln tells this beautiful story uh, that I, I don't actually know if it's true or not, um, or just something the playwright, screenwriter, Tony Kushner, came up with. He says, you know, I learned one thing back when I was a a, sur- a land surveyor. You could have the best compass and it could point to the true north. But if you just follow that compass and don't watch where you're going, you're just going to fall into a pit. I think about this a lot because I think that our problem these days is almost the opposite. Uh, we watch the pits a lot. Like, should I say this? Is it kind of like not just politically correct, but just you know, as people who want to influence people, like, how many people am I going to get to listen to me if I say this thing? Is this too extreme? Is this too off-putting? Is this too hardcore? And I feel again, we're all projecting here because we're Jews. Uh, but I feel personally, this is this is this is a, a, a big thing that I do. Like, oh well, you know, I I I'm here to spread a certain kind of message and I'm a a religious person, but I don't want to offend people with different sensibilities. So here's my Lent sacrifice. I want you to give up moderation. Uh, And I mean in specifically for this, I want you to spend 40 days doing the best that you can actually speaking the truth of the true north. My vision for humanity is this, even if to a person who's not, doesn't share your beliefs like, oh, my God, you're like some weird like, what do you mean you don't believe in X, Y, Z? What do you mean you'd like the world to be like? No, no, I, I mean this. I believe, you know, in the glory of Christ. I believe in this, that and the other. This is the world as I truly imagine it in, in its most radiant form uh, without any consequence or any thought to the consequence of, of how it would make you know politically and kind of like realistically other people feel. This All is right, good. Now I
5: feel like you're staring into my soul. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no I found it especially with the podcast you create this community and then you don't want to alienate this community they they are coming to you because they find something consoling and enriching and I I do I feel like I sometimes censor myself and lord knows I don't tweet any of my opinions <laughs> like I'll like things but I don't say them out loud so yeah that's I- gonna be a rough one for me but it Hopefully fruitful. One. But
0: I mean, I mean, less, you know, in terms of like the day to day kind of of like Twitter this and, and that. I mean, you know, what would happen if you said, you know, here's actually my vision for humanity. Mm. This is actually how I believe people should be. I, I think we would come up with a lot of, you know, really sort of hardcore things that would make people feel very, I don't know, very uncomfortable. I'll give you a dumb and kind of edgy example, but I think it's, it's like an entry, good entry level example. It is not at all cool to say something like, I think pornography is bad and should be banned. I don't think it's a form of speech. I think it's degrading to bodies and souls, men and women, you know, uh, victims and consumers alike. I don't think we should have it. That is not something that you would hear uh, in, in most bars and cocktail parties in this city. And I started saying this some years ago and, and also saying like none of it, it not even casually, uh, because it's become like so ingrained. Mm-hmm. I think it's that type of, of conversation. It's sort of like, here's how I want life to be lived in its ideal, like glittering, most, to to borrow a phrase, Christlike
4: for. You know, I was thinking about uh, the Super Bowl party I was at and when the Jesus commercials came on.
2: I really want to ask you guys
4: about this. Yeah. Oh, were yeah. we were We, we know you have thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Ashley and I are, we were pretty positive on them, but I could feel the collective eye roll mm-hmm. in the room I was in. And, you know, there were a couple comments made here and there, and, you know, maybe I should have been like, "I don't know, actually, like, we should be childlike. It's not the worst <laughs> message that someone could have spent twenty million dollars mm-hmm. on. But, you know, it's a polite conversation. Um, I went back to the jalapeno poppers. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe I don't know, maybe that would have been an instance where I could have, you right. know, just so
2: this is a great thing because I feel like I've been thinking about this since that ad. Like there is this weird, Revulsion people had to that ad, like mm-hmm. that it was so something offensive. Who were we talking? Someone said it was like fascism. Like it's like this. Idea. AOC said yeah. it was yeah. So it's like, what do you two do? You guys, you guys, you're cool. You're young. You're hip. You're Christians. Like like that's that's part of what you do. It's what you do professionally. How do you? So how do you? What do you do in this climate? Or or even if is it this climate? Is this is this real? Am I just seeing one tweet and inferring? No, a lot? I think
4: I think it is. I. What I always try to do is like hear where that's coming from or like what is underneath that. And then if, if I've got like an established enough relationship, I usually try to gently suggest like, are you sure you aren't bringing something into this? Like what, what's, what did you have? What was wrong with this? Right? Like this is where you draw your moral line. Like you're watching the NFL and all these other companies spend (laughs) money on this thing. It's like, this is the problem. But usually I think a lot of people have, don't have spaces to talk about the ways they feel about either the religion they were raised I'm with. I'm I never thought about it. It's like, yeah, your problem with watching a bunch of people <laughs> give not, each not other concussions, concussions not, is Jesus. <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, I really like, like,
2: like that BP ad. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great company. It's like, yeah. yeah like all the car companies yeah.
4: that are, yeah, destroying the world. But no, this was the problem. I don't know. I always try to like at least hear where that's coming from um, before I sort of lean in with my vision for what the world looks like. Because that's the thing I worry about sometimes is that I'm always worried that I might say something like my grand vision for the world, but I'm going to alienate someone like as soon as it's going to fall on deaf ears immediately, which is maybe like my ego talking and thinking that if I just like if Jesuitical enough, I can like weave in and really convince them of something. So, do, is it my ego talking, Liel, or I don't think so. I I, th- I think it's I think it's I think it's your soul. I mean, I think again.
0: Each one of us, and actually, this goes back to what you said, into something that I think all of us feel very strongly. But I think, particularly in this show, I think I feel most strongly is we we really want to spark conversation. It's not so much about us. We do this line of work, I mean, in part for the money and the fame, mm-hmm. uh, and all the other earthly, you know, perks. But but in large <laughs> part, uh, because we really want to reach people and have conversations. It's it's a it's a kind of you know very deep, uh, desire. Uh, and so these concerns are, are not bad, but increasingly I really think, I don't know, maybe it's time to just, to just speak plainly, to just say like, you know what, here's what I feel.
5: I do think Catholics kind of, at least in the circles I run in, Catholics get kind of a pass. Like when the anti-Christian vitriol comes out, it's very much aimed at evangelicals, non-denominational people that they equate with Trump and they, Catholics are distinct enough and have this whole other identity that we can kind of have our own box, which I think makes it more incumbent on us to realize that we do believe that these other Christians, even if they aren't Catholics, believe in the same Jesus as we do. And if people are going after that Jesus, then Catholics can't just be like, oh, well, Uh, that's not our problem. Right.
0: (laughs) i'll speak for myself when i express world views that say like i, I actually see everything all human action uh, and interaction uh, as existing in direct relationship with our creator i might as well have said i believe there's you know a big purple balloon over my head right now because it strikes most of the people i talk to as as absolutely nonsensical and when that translates into a politically unpopular position like, hey, I believe X not because I'm bad or want to oppress other people, et cetera, et cetera, just because I subscribe to a faith that has thought about this a lot and has very intricate positions on these questions and has alighted on the side of this. And I could totally explain and share some of my reservations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's not there's not even a space for me to have that conversation. It has become so incredibly sense of black and white, but it's become so radicalized. And I think in a weird way, I I start to wonder, and this is in part why I flicked to deal with what I did. uh, If it doesn't make sense, rather than try to kind of dance in between the raindrops to say like, okay, well, at the very least then, if I'm already, if I already paid the bill (laughs) as I I sat down to the table, I may as well enjoy the wine. Mm -hmm. I may as well tell you what it is that I actually think. Because I don't know, maybe someone out there would be deeply moved to hear not the sort of like equivocating kind of cautious, but like, no, actually, this is what I believe. Like, I seriously am looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. Like, totally, 100%, un- unironical.
4: Well, I, I think also, like, I try to undercut what questions I think people might have, and that's what usually comes out as dancing around or, like, talking in equivocations. And it really doesn't respect the person in front of you either if you if you don't give them a chance to ask some kind of follow-up question, right? Because then I think that's where real conversation happens. Because if you're responding to what someone is actually asking instead of what you think they might ask, and that's the answer you're giving, Mm -hmm. I think that's where real human encounter can happen.
5: I was having a conversation uh, with a colleague about, you know, whether the point or a point of being a Christian is to make more Christians. And, like, used to be kind of obvious to most Mm -hmm. Catholics that like Jesus said to evangelize all Mm -hmm. nations and all peoples. And we are in a cultural moment where that's kind of, you can't actually believe that. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's a question I struggle with. I mean, talking on a Jewish podcast like I'm not going to try to convince people to be Catholics. So like, <laughs> actually
0: start right
1: now right <laughs> here. Yeah. I, Leo's go like ahead
2: 95% so, of the way 60 there. seconds Does anyone go. who's gonna get him we've you, guys. Already,
1: you realize we're all primed because we've seen the Super Bowl commercials we're, we're <laughs> yes. about 47% yeah.
2: that's way why you're here
5: alright I was already doing what I was trying not to do which is equivocating you come into our house <laughs> <laughs> but it is like for, when I was talking to my colleague he was very much on the side of like no the point of being Christian is not to make more Christians it's to make the world more just
2: in whatever place and I was like yeah but don't you think it would be better
1: making if more everyone Christians. was I mean,
3: exactly.
2: <laughs> what's like the latest buzz on your show like what are some of the things everyone's debating like, like like, what's what's going on over there so
4: the Catholic Church right now is engaged in this process called the Synod on Synodality um, we've not really <laughs> yeah, got like it S-Y-N-O-D so Jesuitical that's how you say that word yep Synod does anyone know what
2: Synod means no
4: Um, basically people have joked it's, uh, this process of meetings to talk about how to have meetings. Oh,
2: that's so, we love those too.
4: Yeah. Um, but what it really is in effect, this like massive listening consultation, uh, process where the church is trying to hear from the widest variety of people possible, um, about what they think about the world, about the church, where things should go. And naturally, anytime people share their honest opinions, um, it can get really, really messy because- there's a group that thinks this is all just like a Trojan horse to change a bunch of things in Catholicism. There's some people that are using it as a Trojan horse to change a bunch <laughs> of things in Catholicism, and other people that really just think it's like an obligation we have uh, to one another to do. So, uh, as a, uh, just as an aside, uh, as as an, an an obsessive,
0: I suppose, Catholic fanboy, as uh, someone who is deeply engaged and and in awe of of the faith, uh, I you know participate in all kinds of of groups, and recently. Uh, was at a meeting that featured a fairly prominent emissary of the Vatican. And I asked a question, uh, and the man who was, by the way, they say, like, dress for the job you want. <laughs> that guy. I mean, yeah, whatever. By the way, if you want to make more questions, be like, you get to wear that. Like, this is freaking amazing. Was this? Uh, a,
5: was it a cardinal or a... It,
0: it, I I don't want to reveal... What it, color was he wearing? Oh, okay. yes, yes. White, purple? Was he was wearing white. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, I love this. It's like the belts in karate. Uh, And he uh, was—I asked him a a question. It was a pretty minor theological question, and he looked at me and he said, "That's a very good question. You know, uh, the the church is uh, discussing this. You should have an answer in about two hundred years." And he wasn't joking. He was like, "Yes, no, we're on it. (laughs) (laughs) Ask us again in two centuries." And I love that. That's amazing.
5: I love that about the church too. But so many—I feel like of my contemporaries. That's the that's the sticking point. It's but, like,
0: but how, uh, how? But how could that be true? It's so wonderful, you know, something that's impervious to our little rhythms.
2: Can these be synods? Like when we go on each other's show, can those be? This things? is a little synod. synod. So yeah. We would have to ask you guys Interface what your synod.
4: impressions are of. <laughs> it's the a forbringen, though. It, it's just their
1: word for forbringen. I could share <laughs> my I'm a, impression
0: during the church. For a tip, I've, I've I've shared. I shared. I think the church is the is the only is the last remaining bulwark for human. Dignity and freedom in this world. It's our last line of defense. We have no other. I'm
2: that as a s- ad on our
0: Super podcast.
2: clear. Liel, which show are you on? I don't know. <laughs> which just <laughs> team are
1: you on? He wants the next Super Bowl gig. Liel <laughs> Liebowitz, <laughs> Jewish podcaster. The Catholic Church is the last line of defense.
5: Can I say that sounded kind of bo- not boring, but because it was called. Like so, no, don't sit it down. so, like some of the flashpoints oh, that yeah. are coming up are yeah. Yeah. things like. Women's ordination, the treatment of LGBT Catholics, um,
4: engaging young people, engaging
5: young people, uh, how to deal with divorced and remarried Catholics. So yeah, so those are kind of the the big questions are that are coming up. And we we had a cardinal, the cardinal Robert McElroy from San Diego, came on Jesuitical to talk about this. And he's definitely one of the people who's, I would say, pushing for honest, pushing for
4: change, yeah, pushing
5: for change uh, around these issues uh, around inclusivity in the Catholic Church. Cool.
4: What are you guys talking about? Fighting
0: about? Conversing about? Whether to uh, back into parking or park? Uh, very very midday things.
2: What have we been talking top, about lately? I sheets, can't even remember whether Jewish, you should add cocktails to every show. Yeah, what well, we would name a Jewish cocktail? Oh yeah, whole you thing. people.
4: Oh yeah, uh, has been. <laughs> oh it. I read yes. yeah. it
2: was so good. It what made me that? want to watch yeah, it. What did you guys? So have you <laughs> I seen, haven't seen
4: it? it yet? No, I stopped like listening to the podcast when you guys started to get into it because I was like, All right, I'm going to watch it first and then I'm going to come. Yeah. back. I'm, I'm so curious so for
2: your thoughts as like. People of faith that aren't Jewish, like, do, does this offend you, on, on our behalf?
4: Where, um, show of hands. Were Were you all offended by it?
2: I just like wish it was a better movie. I feel like when things are offensive, like if it lands, it lands, and you're like, yeah, that's that's a, that's like that's perfect. As we
0: said on the show, the the thing about it that we found most offensive is in the first scene because um, the, the the character is a podcaster, so he's sitting there at like a three million dollar studio with like ridiculous mics. Like, so many you know, sound directional boards. Directional mics and like sound effects. Like, How could a podcaster ever afford that? That's offensive and to not, us.
2: As our, as our producer, Robert, pointed out, they're not even talking into the mics. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he's uh, like, that That room is too big. The sound escapes. There's no way that podcast is successful.
1: So it doesn't work. Mark, did you care for it? I sort of took Liel's position that it made Jews look absolutely horrible, but only about as much as we deserve. Uh, <laughs> Liel, Liel wrote a very good piece on that that I thought was, was really... Dead on, and um, yeah, I thought it was like a B minus rom com that actually had an A plus for depicting the loathsomeness uh, and idiocy of many contemporary Jews. Um, wow, and, and we, your
5: an, endorsement of the Jews and the El-
1: <laughs> <laughs> No, but the issue there, but propaganda. the issue there
5: exactly
0: is it. It was it was not. It was treating it was treating Judaism like a Costco membership card, as like not actually knowing anything or doing anything or investing in any way, and then expecting that it would be transmitted to the next generation. And the the parent characters, not the Jonah Hill, you know, uh, Lauren, Lon- Lauren London characters, uh, who were I thought were kind of incredible, but you know, the parents are Jews and Muslims who comically and I think on both sides equally kind of despicably and ridiculously know nothing, nothing about their their traditions. I mean, they seem like people who read, you know, the first three lines of Wikipedia entry and then said, okay, I got this, I am that, and it's important to me. And I thought just making fun of that was wonderful because it, in the spirit of no moderation, that's bad. That's bad for people and it's, it's bad it's, for children. It's
2: interesting because I wonder what you think, because we I feel like it's so easy to sort of like dunk on Judaism because we're like, oh, it's bagels and chicken soup. And like, especially in, in media, it's like it's such a trope. Like you, I'm sure you, you're like, oh, it's Seinfeld. It's this. And I wonder if they're sort of like uh, maybe particularly Catholic. Like we don't see that. You don't see like a lapsed Christian, do you're you? are
5: about to see it next week when the Catholics come out of the woodworks to get their ashes on their forehead. Oh,
2: because, oh yeah. so we're going to all see like who those secret <laughs> Catholics gonna, are. Yeah. You'll,
5: you'll probably see some TV anchors. We'll see, we'll see, see who's real. I-
1: I've talked before about how I grew up getting on the school bus in Springfield, Massachusetts every year and seeing the ashes and like wanted to run screaming. I thought, what's going on here? It was, it was but question, papists, is there a is there a Catholic version of you people? Is there a movie where yeah. a Catholic filmmaker has at you the way, that, the way that the way that a Latter-day Saint filmmaker has at his own people in Napoleon Dynamite, the way that you could say happens to Jews and you people and some uh, other movies? Lady Bird, Who's Lady the, Bird I was going to say Bird.
4: Lady Bird.
2: Oh, like the Catholic school depiction it's of It's very Bird. Lo-
5: it's more loving than I would say
2: movie. Good movie, yeah. Yeah. What about like John Mullaney saying all that stuff? The bread of bread. We don't like that.
4: No. I don't believe it. I, that feels like a a bit, right? Yeah. I, I don't know.
2: They, they do that to us all the time, those Jewish communities. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what's it called? Derby girls, Dairy
1: girls, Dairy girls, Dairy girls. I stopped watching that because I couldn't understand their. A- three episodes in, I gave up on their accents. Oh, yeah.
5: superstar! That's a good one. Oh, yep, yep. Yeah, a Catholic lot of them
1: revolve all, all around Catholic school, I yeah. would say, or exorcism. Great
5: costumes. It's easy to do. You know what
0: offended me as a Catholic wannabe? The last fifteen minutes of Silence, which otherwise mm. was one of the greatest movies I have ever seen, and then it ended in this way as like
4: no. No, bad. Our colleague, um, all I'll say, it ends like I, I don't know, it's like emotional, it's like violent and put you through the ringer. We got to watch that in Scorsese's office because our colleague helped consult on it. And like it go like, screen goes black, and I'm just like, wow. And out comes Martin Scorsese, and he's just like, oh, what'd you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> um excuse me, Mr. Scorsese. I don't know. I was so but I feel like anytime I see a depiction like that, I'm part of me is just like Oh, I'm so happy that he at least like took it seriously and mm-hmm. took the question mm-hmm. seriously. I might quibble with the end, too, a little bit. But I didn't feel like if you were a thinking person, you walked away unaffected from that movie. Sure.
2: What about Keeping the Faith, one of my favorite movies? Where do you guys stand on that? I love that movie. <laughs> this is I've the movie where
5: it. a priest and rabbi are in love with the same
2: girl. Yeah, they're best, the all best friends from childhood. Uh
1: where all the priests look like Edward Norton. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and Edward Norton where Edward Norton's the priest.
2: And Good all the rabbis to- look like Ben Stiller.
1: Exactly.
0: This is what we should do. I think I think our next collaboration we should, should redo be a this live movie.
1: screening with like
0: live commentary. Uh, like God, like yeah. just yeah. us talking throughout the film. Yeah. Oh my, yeah.
2: I love this. This is great.
0: All right. Done. This
2: all is right. how we're going to activate the young people. Now, get one them last, back engaged. One last
0: question. What do we uh, What do we wish you for Lynn? Uh, a meaningful yeah. Lent, and easy Lent. Lent, blessed, Lent. Lent. Yeah. blessed Lent is usual. May you have a blessed
4: Lent, a very freiliche blessed Lent. Thank you very much. Thank Th- you so thanks much. so much, guys.
1: Pictures of us, as well as the recipe for the Rootless Cosmopolitan, will be in Robert Scaramucci's newsletter this week which you can get by going to tabletm.ag/unorthodox newsletter that's tabletm.ag/unorthodox newsletter
2: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday May 21st
1: Hey, so it's time for our second installment of Across the USA, our new series brought to you in collaboration with the Jewish Federations of North America. We have an ambitious plan to get to 12 American cities all across the continental USA. We're gonna be doing it during 2023, visiting Jewish communities in the U.S. with the assistance of the Jewish Federations of North America, which represents over 400 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $2 billion annually. A tiny fraction of that is going to help us to come see you. For this installment, my colleague Stephanie Butnick grabbed showrunner Courtney Hazlett and producer Robert Scaramuccia and headed to Seattle to get a little taste of the community's Sephardic flavor.
2: If you've heard anything about Seattle, Washington, you've heard about Pike Place Market. It's a huge market, teeming with locals and tourists alike. People are there to shop for produce, flowers, chocolate, basically anything you can think of. There are stalls that sell fish. We even walk past the famous fishmongers who throw the fish. It's also where you can find the original Starbucks.
1: There's the the original
4: Starbucks is around here that somewhere. Original Starbucks. I think that might be it. Hike
2: Place is also where we met Cynthia Flash Hempel a few weeks ago on a rainy Sunday Seattle afternoon. She told us about the surprising Jewish history of this Seattle landmark,
6: the Sephardic Jewish history. My name is Cynthia Flash Hempel. My mother is a Sephardic Jew who immigrated from the island of Rhodes to the United States in 1946. Now I am the president of the Seattle Sephardic Network, which is a small grassroots organization aimed at preserving and spreading the Sephardic history, culture, and religion to all Sephardic Jews in the Seattle area beyond and anyone else who is interested in allying with Sephardic Jews. This market, which is still an icon in Seattle today, has a very, very strong and rich history among Seattle's Jewish population, particularly Seattle Sephardic Jews who were merchants at the market and coming from um, seafaring towns, they felt very, very comfortable here. The market overlooks the Puget Sound. There's a lot of fish sold at the market, and Seattle Sephardic Jews were a big part of that history in the past and a little bit today as well.
3: Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking
0: for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But is the man of Shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA.
2: I'm Stephanie Butnick, and on this installment of Across the USA We're going to the Emerald City to meet its Sephardic community The third largest in the United States Behind New York and Los Angeles Sephardic Jews trace their history back to medieval Spain. They were expelled in 1492 during the Inquisition and made their way around the Mediterranean and North Africa, where they preserved their own cultural traditions while picking up local flavors, dialects, and more. In America today, the majority of Jews are Ashkenazi and trace their heritage back to Eastern Europe. The majority of Jews in Seattle are Ashkenazi too. According to the most recent survey of the population by the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle, which came out in 2014, there were 63,400 Jews in Greater Seattle. Eight percent, or roughly 5,000 of them, identified as Sephardic. But the Sephardic community has maintained their cultural heritage across generations of close-knit families. The first Sephardic Jews came to Seattle in the early 1900s.
6: When the first Sephardic Jews came to Seattle, the Sephardic Jews wanted to find the Jewish community, but they didn't speak Yiddish, they spoke Ladino. They were saying, Yehudi, Yehudi, Jew. And the Ashkenazic Jews like weren't really sure that they were Jewish. The Ashkenazic uh, Jewish leaders from Seattle actually had to send a letter back to New York saying, We have these folks, they speak the Spanish language, they claim they're Jewish, we're not so sure. The rabbi that they checked with actually confirmed that yes, in fact, even though they don't speak Yiddish, they are Jewish. The Sephardic Jews
2: in Seattle came from two places, Turkey and Rhodes. That language they spoke, Ladino, is Judeo-Spanish, a mix of Spanish and Hebrew and other languages that were picked up along the way, like Turkish or Italian. While the established Ashkenazi community didn't know what to make of these new arrivals, the Sephardic Jews discovered they actually had a lot in common with the Greek immigrants slinging fish down at
6: Pike Place. A lot of them were fishmongers, some of them had vegetable stands. This was a very, very popular hangout for Sephardic Jews, even those who didn't work here. They would come down, they would socialize, they would play games, and they would speak to each other and call to each other in Ladino. So it was not unusual during the early part of the century to come to the market and hear Ladino being spoken among the merchants and their Sephardic customers. A few of these early
2: Sephardic food stands still exist today and are run by the same families. So many fish staring at us. My favorites are the silver ones that are over there.
3: Is that salmon? I'm Isaac Bihar. We're at the Pike Place Market here at Pure Food Fish Market.
2: Did you catch that name, Bihar? That's one of the common Sephardic surnames here in Seattle, like Azos, Al-Hadef, and Benaroya. But back to Isaac and Pure Food Fish which his great-grandfather, Jack Amon, started in 1911. My great-grandfather was running from the Turkish army, did
3: not want to join, being forced to join. The fish market was a poor man's business, very easy to get into, and he decided he was going to start here, and uh, the rest was history. Uh, We specialize in the freshest seafood in the Northwest, specifically smoked salmon, fresh salmon, king crab, scallops, mussels, which I know are not kosher things, but uh, we get a lot of nice halibut and black cod and just all around just the freshest Northwest seafood. We we wanted swimming, you know, within the last 24 to 48 hours max. Uh, This is some Alderwood Smoked King Salmon,
2: super fresh, just absolutely delicious. Oh, that is so good. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I don't have the words to describe it, but it's very good. The Sephardic Jews certainly left their mark on Pike Place, but there's more. There's Benaroya Hall, where the Seattle Symphony plays. The University of Washington has a world-renowned Sephardic Studies program. There's even a Starbucks connection. Howard Bihar was responsible for turning the Seattle Coffee Company into an international phenomenon. And then there's the Seward Park neighborhood, where much of Seattle's observant Jewish population lives. There are a handful of different synagogues, all within walking distance including Ezra Basareth and Sephardic Bikerholam, the two Sephardic synagogues. Both synagogues were founded in the early 1900s. Ezra Basareth was founded by Jews from the island of Rhodes. Sephardic Bikerhollam was founded by Jews from Turkey. If you're in the know, you might refer to Ezra Basareth as E.B, or even Ezi Bezi. Sephardic Bikerholam goes by SBH. We visited Seward Park on a big day for both synagogues. It was Tubishvat, the Jewish near of the trees, known as Ferticas in Ladino. The two synagogues were jointly hosting a Ferticas Seder. Here's Jeffrey Solem, president of Ezra Besareth, which I think technically makes him the Ezzy Bezi Prezi.
1: My name is Jeffrey Solem, and I'm president of Ezra Besaroth, so Ezra Besareth. The Tubishvat program, the Ferticas program, it's a very unique program in that we've been doing this for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, not all right here, but definitely as it went back to the
3: old countries. It's a cute, unique little ceremony that's done a lot with our rabbis and with the children. It's something that the adults get to kind of sit and watch, and the children get to participate.
2: If you've never heard of a Tu Seder, yeah, it's a thing for Jews from all over the world. At a Frutika Seder, the holiday seven species, wheat, Barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates are each celebrated with a reading in English, Hebrew, and Ladino. And of course, there's a festive meal. This year's event is packed with a waiting list.
4: Believe it or not, there's people
1: calling even within the last hour trying to actually get in.
2: Hundreds of people had gathered at Ezra Becerra, from toddlers to 90-year-olds, all seated around big round tables. They were waiting for the main event. The kids on stage who would lead the Seder, blessing each food in English, Hebrew, and Ladino. La higuera punto sus igos e las vidas and cierne dieron huesmo. It's amazing. What does that mean?
5: It's something about a fig tree giving forth its like vines and its figs. It's very beautiful so hearing like the different languages, which is really fun. And then you hear all the different ages doing it, which is really like fun.
3: Let's
5: see, let's yeah. <laughs> Hello everyone, happy futicas everyone. Hello. 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 las Okay. Wow. <laughs> De la Granada tu sien, de oriente de la
3: Crencia.
7: Okay, thank you all for all those that participated and enjoy your evening.
2: The evening felt meaningful for every generation of the community.
7: It's very,
1: very inspiring, and it makes me feel good that we have upcoming generations that could effectively and so lovingly represent who we are and what we stand for.
2: After the Seder, I talked to Albert Bihar and his daughter, Naomi. She's married to Jeff, the president of Ezra Basareth. We
1: oftentimes refer to our community as an extended family.
2: I think it is our family, not our family away from our family, it is just our family. And when you look around
0: and you look at what I would call my Ezra Becerra family, I'm looking right now at Hazan Yitzchak I'm looking at Leah, I'm looking at Jeff, but they truly are my family and
2: not just saying that I'm so close with these people, our family. Or that you might actually be related to them. I'm telling you, Many I are. am <laughs> Many actually are. related to these people. And it was just... A big part of why Fruticas is so special Shabbat, is that it features um, kids speaking Ladino. Ladino to Sephardic Jews is sort of like Yiddish to Ashkenazi Jews, something earlier generations spoke fluently, but their grandkids might not know as well. What's your favorite Ladino phrase? El Dios moz apiade. God help us. You would say that if something
1: happened, you know, they say, heaven forbid. Part
2: of the power of this event is the way it connects the generations.
3: My name is Ray Bihar, member of the Ezra Becerath since I was born. Uh, I'm going to be 90 in about three weeks. Ray has been a part of Ezra Becerath's Ladies Auxiliary
2: for decades. The group raises money for the synagogue through bake sales and events. She told us about a particularly memorable event she put on years ago, right here in this room.
3: We had shows on the stage, and that was the most fun in the world. I wrote Fiddler on the Roof, only to the Sephardic ways.
2: To be clear, when Ray was younger, she wrote a Sephardic version of the most Ashkenazi play of all time, Fiddler on the Roof, and performed it on this stage just a few feet from us.
3: So, you know, in the Fiddler on the Roof, it says, I don't know if they say meat or milk. What does it say? What does it say when one of the songs? Anyhow, I said, Kezu, carne, Kezu, carne. And so I made it for the Sephardics. And I had people in age from seven or eight to my aunties who were much younger than I am now, but I thought they were quite a bit older. They were like 60 or 70 very successful. We had about 400 people. Wow. I sat on the edge of the stage and I had my brother-in-law who's an electrician rig up a light onto that thing and so it was pitch black and then the light would flash onto here and I was sitting there like this. And in the background I had my aunt who played the violin da 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 and I went fiddler on the brook. Sounds crazy, no? But here in our Ezra Becerra, each one of us is a fiddler on the roof.
2: This particular frutika Seder was a big deal for another reason. It was the first time in decades that Ezra Becerath and Sephardic Beaker Hollem put on a combined fruticas. That night, we talked to Miri Azos-Tilson, the new president of Sephardic Beaker Hollem, and her grandfather, Solomon Mo Azos, about the intertwined histories of these two synagogues.
6: I don't know if you know the history about this, you know, but the two communities separated in 1914. My grandfather was a rabbi here at the time. Got here in 1910 and they were all together at one time, both synagogues. Now, a couple of the men had a little disagreement, so people from the Esmeralda said, said, we'll build our own synagogue. So this is over 100 years ago, and we're separate. And you can see the the division. Why should it be continuing?
8: At one time, Papu, each synagogue was full, it was vibrant, it was thriving. They didn't need to necessarily join. So now it's really a time for us to come back together, especially as the memberships decline.
2: If one of Judaism's great tensions is between preserving traditions and adapting to modern life, the Sephardic community in Seattle faces that even more acutely. They've not only had to contend with the basic challenges of being a Jew in America, they've had to fight to be heard in the overwhelmingly Ashkenormative reality of American Jewish life. Sephardic kids in Seattle eat traditional foods like biscochos and borekas, perfected by their grandmothers. But if they speak a second language, it's Hebrew, not Ladino. Just a few generations ago, it was controversial for a Sephardic Jew to marry an Ashkenazi Jew. But that's now incredibly common. Most of the Sephardic Jews I met were intermarried to Ashkenazi Jews. And then there are the two Sephardic synagogues in Seward Park. They still have separate and beautiful buildings. The Jews whose families came from Rhodes still go to Ezra Basereth and the Turkish Jews still go to Sephardic holom But they found success in holding combined events. And while each synagogue is still orthodox and still has separate seating for men and women, there's something decidedly modern happening. It's Miri, Sephardic holom's first female president.
8: What I want people to know about our community is how much soul we have. So we may be a small community, We some people may say that we're dying, we're shrinking, but we really are so passionate about our traditions and what makes us different, and really that we live through spirit, not necessarily by the letter of the law. You see, you know, women in pants, I'm, I don't cover my hair, but I'm the president of an orthodox synagogue. And the reason for that is because we're warm, we're welcoming, we accept people as they are, and we go by the spirit of the law. So we really have a very joyful culture, as I'm sure you're experiencing tonight. And I think that's something that makes the Seattle Sephardic community special.
2: We first met Mary earlier that day at Connections 2023, a women's luncheon put on by the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. Here, in the broader Jewish community, Miri was one of the few Sephardic Jews in attendance. She was part of the day's program and gave a Dvar Torah.
8: Good morning, ladies. I am thrilled and honored to be standing before you this morning to share a few words of Tawak. My name is Miri Azos Tilson. I'm a fourth-generation Seattleite and member of Congregation Sephardic Bikor Faleem, of which I am the new and first female board president.
2: Miri is establishing herself as a fixture in the Seattle Jewish community, bridging boundaries between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, and also within her own Sephardic community. Before her dvar Torah, Miri talked to us about the very real question facing her community right now whether to merge together into one big Sephardic congregation, or to stay proudly separate.
8: I was part of a committee that was trying to bring together the two synagogues. We had what was called the Sephardic Unity Project, which didn't culminate in the synagogues joining together, but we are focused on doing more together, especially since we're such a small community and we're really all related. Um, You know, people say we're so different, but we're completely the same. And my husband is Ashkenazic, so I'm, I'm very happy to bring the community together and I always tell people that I'm an ambassador of unity.
2: This merger question is a hot button topic in the community right now. When these two synagogues were built, there were enough observant Sephardic Jews just from Rhodes to fill a 700-person synagogue and enough just from Turkey to fill another. That's not the case anymore. As strong as this community is, people move away, stop going, or join a synagogue in a different part of the city. What's left, even if it's vibrant, is just smaller. Miri's grandfather Mo put a finer point on how this plays out.
6: Last Monday, we did not have a minion. Talked to uh, Jeff Ammon. I said, we only had eight people in the synagogue, so we didn't have a minion. He says we didn't have a minion either. We should have been together. One minion is better than no minion. Yep.
2: Jews can't pray without a minion, 10 people, in this case, 10 men. One combined minion is surely preferable to two non-minions. This combined Fertiga Seder was sold out and lively. So in one light, merging seems almost like an obvious move. But there are incredibly complicated feelings when it comes to combining congregations. Preserving one place of worship means abandoning another, where generations of the same family have sat in the same pews for more than a century. This is Rabbi Simon Benzikin, who was Sephardic Beker Holem's rabbi before moving over to Ezra Besareth. We talked to him and Al Maimon, who was president of Sephardic Beer Holim when Rabbi Benzikin led the congregation. They both told us about some of the differences between the synagogues, which are small, but also big.
7: I know uh, practically everything that we know at the, my first synagogue, Sephardic Bikurholim. Holim. When I came here, I had to start learning a few things as well, you know, and I'm still not there.
0: <laughs> the closer we are,
7: the bigger <laughs> the distance, the difference. The distance. <laughs> yes. No matter how small it may seem to somebody else, how could you do I've heard like the
2: Adono yes. Lams are different.
7: The tune is practically the same, but there's certain variation. Yeah. That what, what happened. A lot of things, there are certain variation. Even when you start singing in the same tune, there are always variation. And this is what the differences. And you know, sometimes those different are really, you are stuck in those differences, and uh, this is what we are. You don't change so easy. You have to study very hard. You know, we happen to be rich in mind. We have two community, two synagogues, you know. Yeah. In that respect, that's what it is. But uh, we feel very close when we are together. I remember when I was young and throughout, for probably about a hundred years, have been talking about saying, why don't we merge together? Let's merge There we'll be stronger. And we haven't,
0: and we aren't. And there, there's a Mori oh, yeah. I was talking to him one time. When I was younger, I said, we have to be merging. He says, now, oh, maybe the fact that we are separate and we're constructively competitive, it, well, if they do that, then we have to do this. Or if I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly happy here anymore, I have someplace else to go. <laughs> and so that dynamic, as long as it's a constructive competition yeah, yeah, yeah. and which most of our time we have managed to keep it that way, I think may explain, if you look at other places where there's Le- Levantine, Ladino-speaking Sephardim, they they, they they merged and then it just sort of
3: dissolved. Yeah, and,
7: you're right. yeah, very strong <clears throat> still, you know. The, the attachment to whether to your synagogue and, or the other synagogue. And, but at the same time when there is an opportunity, we get together is wonderful. Well
2: Joke about the guy stuck on a desert island. He builds two synagogues, the one he goes to and the one he doesn't. The community at Fertikas is different than it was 50 years ago. It's two synagogues together, with Ashkenazi Jews married in and kids memorizing Ladino phrases instead of being fluent. This all might point to bigger existential worries, but I gotta say, being in that room that night, I was incredibly moved. Those kids singing, the families cheering, the room full of life on a Sunday night in February? Pretty good for a community that started with those two guys yelling Yehudi on a Seattle street corner more than 100 years ago. I'm Stephanie Butnick reporting from Sephardic Seattle. As they say in Ladino, para muchos años. Special thanks to Rena Raphael, Leah Almo-Lipman, Emily al Hannah Pressman, Tori Schwartz, the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle, and all the children who shared their fruticas selections with us.
1: Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week?
0: I sure do to my dear friend and friend of Tablet Studios and our collaborator on the Take One podcast, Rabbi David Beshevkin, who had a birthday just a few days ago. Mazel Tov to you. What an
1: absolute joy it is to have you as our friend. I am going to steal that notion of the the birthday Mazel Tov and wish a happy birthday to my brother, Jonathan, a.k.a. Uncle Pookie Oppenheimer of St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, husband of Britta, father to Isaac and Tilly. He turned, uh, gosh, when did he was born? 1982. He turned 41 this past week on the same day that my old college roommate, Basil Virgil Hicks III, turned 49. February 15th, big day in the world of the greater Oppenheimer community. Also, my dear friend and and former Jew of the Week, Willard Spiegelman, has a new book out. He's been working on it for a long time. It's the first, and I dare say, definitive biography of the poet Amy Clampett. It's called Nothing Stays Put, The Life and Poetry of Amy Clampett. It is a beautiful, beautiful book out this month from Knopf and a, a big mazel tov to Willard for finishing this very, very uh, long and important project. And for being named Willard, let's be honest here.
2: Yeah, it's, it's amazing.
1: The last of the Willards. As a kid, he was Billy, but you wouldn't call him Billy now if you know what's good for you. Stephanie, a mazel tov?
2: I just want to give a shout out to our Jesuitical friends, Ashley McKinless and Zach Davis. They ask us for what to do for Lent. I love talking to them. It's the definition of fellowshipping, and I could not be more here for it. So just uh, just thanks to them for always including us in in their in their little holiday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> always good to fellowship. I feel so fellowshipped.
2: We didn't even actually talk about fellowshipping with them.
1: I know. I don't know if I feel so great right now because I'm still on the 48-hour high from hot yoga yesterday morning. Or if it's because I just fellowshipped with attractive, intelligent Christians. It's just whatever it is, it's working for me. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Liel Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hayes, Latanya Singer, Jerome Rousquet, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag, including Liel's and Frank Pants, at tabletstudios.com. The episode artist by Esther Wardaker, theme music is by Golem, and Nailbox Name is by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail, including and frank pants of your design. At P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 1001. Rabbinic Supervision this week by Rab- by Simon Benzikin of Seattle, Washington. And we come to you from the rootless cosmopolitan serving bar of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.